Today on the Bill Kelly Podcast, the latest convoy protest to head into our nation's capital, Rolling Thunder, Ottawa. Police have already called in reinforcements and say it won't be like what happened in February with the truckers. We speak with freelance journalist Justin Lang. A change is coming in how screening is being done for blood donations in this country. Everyone is going to be screened the same way. It's a change that's been requested for a long time. And we'll hear from one of the organizations that have been advocating for this change, the Community-Based Research Center. Also changing the way we work and how long we work. Leah Nord from the Canadian Chamber of Commerce with her thoughts on extending working life and putting off retirement. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts right now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Ottawa is bracing for another convoy-style protest slated to start today. It's called Rolling Thunder Ottawa, and this time it's motorcyclists that have promised to descend. Your police service will not tolerate unsafe or unlawful conditions that could lead to another unlawful protest. Ottawa's interim police chief Steve Bell says they've learned several lessons from the Freedom Trucker Convoy and downtown takeover earlier this year and stressed there will not be a repeat this weekend. Bell says some portions of the downtown have already been closed off to vehicles, barricades are up and there's an increased police presence. No motor vehicle based protests, rallies or events will be allowed in the designated downtown core. This includes area near and around Parliament Hill. for the actual ride through the city, bikers won't be permitted to make any stops or park along their route. We'll be ready to provide an immediate police response to issues. Organizers of the convoy have told police they plan on heading out on Sunday. Tina Trajani, Global News. Freedom Fighters Canada says it's demanding an end to all government mandates and the end of tyrannical legislation. Ottawa police have already made some preparations. Joining us now from Ottawa is freelance journalist Justin Lang. Good morning, Justin. Morning. What's happening in Ottawa right now? So I confess, I'm not in Ottawa right now. I'm going to be following the protest from afar. Um, I, my appetite for, for dealing with yet another convoy is uh, preciously low. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm following some of these groups from afar, watching some of the um, organizing taking place online, watching some of the groups and the individual actors who we've seen in this movement in recent months uh, slowly prepare themselves <clears throat> to, uh, to, to, to send to the capital yet again. And uh, from what we just heard, uh, part of the area that they had been hoping to parade through has been blocked off. Yeah, the city has made it pretty clear that they don't uh, they don't want these people in the downtown core. They're going to be allowed to drive through uh, center town, uh, but the city is, is, is promising they will not be allowed to stop. So I think folks in downtown Ottawa are going to be getting uh, a fair bit of uh, you know rolling, you know, rumbling uh, engines, probably a fair bit of honking. But uh, you won't, I don't think, uh, you know, see them try to occupy the downtown core, occupy Parliament Hill. Um, although they have vowed that they intend on holding a memorial at the National uh, War Memorial just across from Parliament Hill, uh, the city has said they do not want that. They do not, they're not going to tolerate that. So there's probably going to be a fair bit of uh, tension when they finally try and, and, and kind of descend on the War Memorial tomorrow afternoon. Well, there's also another group that says they're planning an unwelcome party at a nearby park. 
Yeah, I mean, trying to figure out exactly what the, the plan is for all these folks is incredibly difficult. I think what you'll probably see the compromise be in order for them to get into the downtown core is they're going to go park somewhere nearby and, and sort of walk to the downtown. Uh, there is a group who are pledging a uh, free speech rally on Parliament Hill. There's the um, the veterans event at the War Memorial. There is a motorcycle rally at some park nearby. Um, there's going to be a church service the next morning there's all of these events that are sort of scattered around the city uh that police are definitely going to have a fair bit of trouble keeping kind of uh their 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 hands on right really yeah there's going to have to be a lot of communication because once again you're going to have a number of different police services involved in trying to uh at least keep an eye on things yeah, that's right. And, and, and you know, like I said, I think police have, have conveyed the message that these folks are not welcome to, to occupy any part of the city. And uh, the groups involved have, have said pretty emphatically that occupation is not or blockades, you know, it's not their end goal here. Um, yet they've made it pretty clear that they're not. Uh, that they consider you know the Ottawa police edict here to be uh, illegal, unconstitutional, you know, anti-democratic, you name it. Um, so they're already kind of you know gearing up for a a bit of a conflict here. Um, some of the individuals who uh, are involved in this were also organizers or participants in the convoy that happened in January and February. Uh, we know that there is uh, one group, uh, or at least a couple of figures from one group that were that have connections to the folks who were arrested in Coots, Alberta, uh, charged with a plot to kill RCMP officers. So there is already fears that an extremist element is also present in this. Uh, but overall, I'm not seeing the evidence that this movement, this this particular uh, cabal of folks is, uh, is going to be as large by any measure as the uh, the convoy that arrived in Ottawa in January. There's just not the groundswell here. There's just not the excitement. Uh, there's not the sort of volume that uh, you'd anticipate from a bigger rally. We'll get a better sense this afternoon when a bunch of these groups take off from around Ontario and Quebec and head towards uh, the capital, but uh, I would anticipate you're looking at a few hundred people, not thousands. Well, uh, one of the groups that will be participating uh, in this event, I guess we could call it, uh, they're saying that Chris Guy is going to be one of their speakers. Well, there's already been a fair bit of infighting going on um, in terms of who's really leading, you know, leading the convoy here. So um, there is kind of one particular group called Veterans for Truth that kind of claim the mantle of being kind of the real organizers um, of this whole thing, uh, and they sort of claim that. Um, the other folks involved, folks like Chris Skye, who has you know a long history of violating public health measures, of um, some more obscene things like questioning the death toll from the Holocaust, um, suggesting that folks like Chris Skye have nothing to do with their movement, um, you know, suggesting that Chris Skye is sort of latched on to it. Um, but of course, this is contradicted by the fact that the actual posters and promotional material for this event um, lists Chris Skye as their special guest speaker. So you know, there's already you know this attempt. To, to, to sort of sweep under the rug, um, you know, some of the actual, uh, you know, involvement in, in, in this thing. And, uh, you know, I think it's it, it sort of, 
taking a cue from what the uh, the convoy in January and February tried to do, which was um, you know put forward this very publicly palatable face, suggest that there's no um, you know no extremist elements, no uh, conspiratorial elements, uh, even as they're you know oftentimes standing right there or intimately involved in the organization. So you know there's already uh, definitely evidence that this group is is has some some more obscene elements to it, but really fundamentally. It's not like there is a moderate element to this either. I mean, you know, at the core of this group, just like at the core of the convoy that came to Ottawa in January, uh, there is a, a really deeply conspiratorial belief. You know, there is a belief that vaccines are killing scores of people. Um, there is a belief that the government of Canada is being controlled by a secret power um, you know, located in Europe, uh, that the government is corrupt and that the last election was fraudulent and so on and so forth. You know, there is the, the, the motivating factor behind this um, this movement is the idea that this government is illegitimate and that um, you know they are the last line of defense between freedom and tyranny. Well, Justin, it'll be interesting to uh, read your reporting on this, and I, I don't really blame you from for reporting from afar on this one. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't need another uh, convoy, uh, at least not, not in the first half of this year. All right. Well, thanks again for your time, Justin. We really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Justin Ling is a freelance journalist who'll be reporting on the Rolling Thunder Ottawa convoy-style protest that is expected to start later today in Ottawa. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. A big change is coming for the way Canadian Blood Services will be collecting donations. In particular, donors will be screened regardless of gender or sexuality for high-risk sexual behaviours. The long-standing ban on taking donations from men who have sex with men is ending. Ontario Liberal MP Rob Oliphant, who lost a partner to AIDS in the early days of that crisis, says this has been a long time coming. I understand why Canadians were worried and why blood services was worried and why bans were put on. I understand that. But science evolved and uh, social attitudes evolved and our understanding evolved about what this virus and any virus is. Uh, joining us now is one of the people who has been working for this change. Nathan Lachowski is a research director at the Community-Based Research Centre and a PhD associate professor at the School of Public Health and Social Policy at the University of Victoria. Good morning and thank you for joining us. Good morning, Jonah. Thanks so much for having me. Um, this has been a long time in coming, most certainly. Indeed. Um, and that the change had to be approved through Health Canada and Canadian Blood Services. How long has this been going on? It's a great question. I mean, this policy specific to men who have sex with men has been in place for several decades, and it really goes back to the um, early days of the HIV epidemic. And during, we unfortunately have a history in Canada of the blood scandal, where during thousands of Canadians unknowingly acquired HIV and hepatitis C through blood transfusion. And at that time, we knew a lot less about HIV. And Fortunately, with years and years of science, we have advanced our testing technology and also learned a lot more about who is likely to acquire HIV and who isn't based on what specific sexual practices. So thankfully, the announcement today is really a fundamental shift in how we will approach blood donor screening that really is evidence-based um, and is focused on ensuring the safety of the blood supply, but also making sure that we don't turn away donors who would otherwise be safe. And that's really um, that's really worth celebrating. It's it's putting everybody who wants to make a, a blood donation on the same level. Absolutely. I think this approach to equality is really important. During, we've had this specific policy against men who have sex with men. And when we've done our research across the, the country with 
patients who receive blood products um, during folks dealing with hemophilia or sickle cell, um, they were surprised and shocked that all of the donors weren't asked questions about sexual behavior. During in today's day and age, during I mean, HIV and sexually transmitted infections can affect anybody. And so um, during this shift to asking all donors about specific sexual practices was um, during really quite welcomed by folks uh, living with blood disorders and who use blood products. And I think we can all agree, during, I mean, if any of us ended up in the emergency and had an accident, we would want to make sure that blood is available and that it's safe. And that's really what we're addressing with this. And under the topic of our evolving understanding of things, uh, part of what's evolved in in the time that's elapsed here is a better understanding of issues with regards to gender and issues with regards to sexual orientation. And I think that's why uh, the phrase men who have sex with men is being used. Absolutely. I mean, I think this policy is really about creating something that's going to be sustainable and that's going to work for all Canadians. And we've had lots of conversations in our country over the last few years about two-spirit and LGBTQ people. And during the current policy, during discriminates against certain parts of the LGBTQ community. Um, but this new approach is going to ask all donors, regardless of gender, regardless of sex at birth, regardless of sexual orientation, specific questions about their relationships and sexual practices. And, and that equality is, is really important. And it's a part of safety, um, but it's also a part of making sure that we have um, a sufficient number of donors able to contribute. We've heard time and time again over this pandemic about the need for additional donors. And when we've done research with gay, bi, and queer men across Canada, we've heard that 90% of those people are interested in donating blood if they were eligible. And so I think we're going to have a really exciting time in the fall once this is all implemented to be able to see new donors coming in um, and contributing to our blood system and and helping out their fellow Canadians. And even before the COVID crisis, I mean, we would do stories leading into long weekends or, you know, summer vacation time from Canadian Blood Services saying, you know, the stockpile is low. We need the help. Absolutely. I mean, I think we know that there are far more eligible Canadians than are able than than actually donate. And yes, there are a number of different kinds of restrictions. And even these this new change today is still going to mean that some people from the LGBTQ community and others aren't going to be able to donate. But what's important is that if you are eligible, that you take that opportunity to participate. We're certainly going to be doing some celebrating this summer in terms of this announcement. It's been during a long time coming in a, over a decade of advocacy from the LGBTQ community. And then we'll be making sure that people are informed and ready to come and show up for donation in the fall once this is implemented. And during it'll take a bit of time for Canadian Blood Services to change their systems, update their questionnaire, train their staff to make sure that they're ready to receive these folks who have been turned away um, for much uh, for many, many years. And that they have a good experience because it's those ongoing donors who show up time and time again to donate that really helps make sure that we have that sufficient supply when it's needed. It was also interesting, I was reading that this is actually one step towards ending other forms of discrimination that's been going on. Yeah, this policy is just one example of discriminatory policies that have existed in the blood system. I mean, at a time in our, um, not so long ago in Canada, there were certain uh, Black Canadians who were uh, barred from donating because they were from specific African nations. And while that policy has changed and this policy is changing now, they speak to a history of discrimination that's very important for us to address, to atone for, to apologize for, and to really think about how do we repair relationships with these communities um, and how... um, um, vital public education is to make sure that the public is aware of what really is evidence-based um, so that we're not 
um, during unfairly discriminating or stigmatizing or stereotyping these communities. So I think it's a quite an exciting shift in, in that regard. And I mean, there's still going to be some discrepancies in Canada. Um, during Quebec is not going to move forward with this change at the same timeline as Canadian Blood Services. And they'll be looking to what happens uh, at the Canadian Blood Services site so that hopefully they will implement a, a similar process in, in, in Quebec. And we as a country also have a chance to contribute to this global movement. There are still many countries globally that have policies in place that bar men who have sex with men from donating blood. And so what we do here um, could have a global contribution as well. And it'll be nice to, to certainly see this change come into effect. Uh, it's unfortunate, though, that it can't come into effect before the fall. I found that a little strange. Yes, it, it does take some time. And I mean, part of this is systems, do you know what I mean? And needing to make sure that during all of the questionnaires are updated. And part of it, as I said, is that capacity building and change within staff. I mean, for many, many years, um, during people have been turned away um, on the basis of their sexual orientation. And so now to, to have this new policy means that we're going to have different people in these clinics. And we want to make sure that people do feel welcome, that they feel affirmed, that they have a good experience. Because as I said, that coming back for additional donations is what's really important. Um, and so it'll take a bit of time, but we've been waiting for several decades already. So a few months should be okay. Well, I appreciate you taking time to speak with us this morning. Absolutely. My pleasure. And we look really look forward to the kind of ripple effect this will have. I think creating a blood system here in Canada that everyone understands and can be proud of will mean that more people can donate and, and won't feel like it's a discriminatory system. We've been speaking with Nathan Lachowski, Research Director at the Community-Based Research Centre and a PhD Associate Professor at the School of Public Health and Social Policy at the University of Victoria. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. One of the changes being felt in working life is a delay of that golden handshake. The latest census numbers show that about 22% of our workforce, those between 55 and 64, are approaching retirement age. Larger segment than it's ever been before. And if they exit at 65, it could put quite a bind on the working world. One of those saying maybe you should think about staying on a little bit longer is Leah Nord. She's Senior Director of Workforce Strategies and Inclusive Growth for the Canadian Chamber of Commerce. Good morning, Leah. Good morning. Nice to be here again. Thanks. There was a time that if you had decades into a company or in a, in a particular profession, you might start feeling a bit of a push towards the door. But from what you're saying, that may not be true now. Yeah, the world has certainly changed. You know, those days when you went to high school, you got a job, you stayed with your, your company your whole life and, and retired at, at 65 with that golden handshake. That is uh, few and far between, if, if not... Uh, you know, fading entirely. Uh, uh, that's to be sure of things. One of the things you've been saying is that we need everybody to stay in the workforce yeah. and for longer. So why is that? Yeah, so we I've talked to you guys over the, the weeks here every time our, our job numbers come out. And, and I talk to, to you like a piece of a puzzle or the approach we've been using right now is a recipe, right? We've got a, a, a workforce situation that we've never had before. We've got workforce shortages across the countries, across sectors and affecting all sizes of business, a real impediment to growth here as we come out of the pandemic. So we need everybody in. We need all of those, you know, when you have a recipe, you need each piece in order for the recipe to come out, you know, correctly. And, and older workers are, are, are definitely a, a, a piece of that. And, and, you know, there's those trends that you acknowledged, right? Again, these were trends before the pandemic. We knew there was an aging population and, and lower fertility, right? 
Uh, so immigration is a piece of that. We can absolutely talk about that. But there's also the, we're living much longer, right? When, when we talk about, you know, 65 as retirement, that, you know, you could still have decades to live after that as well and healthy lifestyles as well, right? And, and how do you afford to do that? So, you know, it's, it's a win-win-win across the board and, and there's plenty of things we can be considering and a little bit of creativity that, that can help everybody to, uh, you know, and the economy at the end of the day, this is what we need in order to grow. So uh, lots of things we can be doing. Well, I, I know I have a couple of examples I can share with you. One is a friend of mine who was in high school, uh, went uh, to work almost immediately at General Motors, retired uh, at 55, and then kind of uh, as he was moving his parents into the same retirement community as his grandparents live in, he realized, you know, maybe I'm going to need to do something else here. That uh, my, my pension and retirement planning uh, may not be enough to see me through the whole way. I mean, that's one of the considerations for people, I suppose. Oh, there's, yeah, absolutely, definitely, right? If you're retiring at 65 and, and still have decades to, to, to live, uh, income is definitely it. If you take a look at the, the larger picture, you know, and, and Canada as a whole, you know, pressures on the healthcare system. Uh, as well, and that's going to require a workforce too. So there's there's plenty there's plenty to be um, looking at here. You know, I think maybe overall in a good way, right? We're living longer, we're living healthier lives. There's there's more possibility, uh, but I think we have to adjust a, a lot a lot of our thinking in order to be successful to do this. Well, uh, another uh, example is uh, another guy I know was the executive director of an agency. And uh, he announced that he was retiring, that he gave them six months notice. And they asked him to stay on because they couldn't find anybody who was as qualified as he was to continue on. And he wound up working another two or three years until they could find someone. Yeah. And, you know, in, in a situation like that, you know, one of the, the responses could, could be is to, to have him stay on, but have, you know, succession planning, right? Have somebody alongside of him during that time in order to be able to do it, right? Mentoring, um, but mentoring is also a, a two-way street, right? He'd have a lot to learn from a, a, a younger, different, newer employee as well. Um, and, and ways to work, you know, part-time work, mentoring programs, the experience that, that uh, you know, those in the workforce for a number of years have that, that others can benefit from, or this, you know, there's, there's this aspect of intergenerational workforce as well, right? You could have seven decades of workers conceivably in, in a single workforce. And, and, and what does that look like, right? And, and how can you harness all of those different views and perceptions, uh, you know, for, for the good of the organization and the individuals? Well, on the issue of succession planning, and as you pointed out earlier, it's not like we didn't know that this was happening, mm-hmm. <laughs> that we have this, uh, this baby boomer glut of people that are, are facing retirement and are going to be going into retirement, and we don't have as many workers coming in to follow them. And again, we did. We did know this before the pandemic. What the numbers showed uh, from StatsCan this week is that we have the highest potential number of retirees. I mean, it is an assumption that everybody retires there at, at 65, which is not the reality um, for everyone either. But, you know, the other thing that the pandemic did bring out, you know, it, you know along these lines of opportunity or optimism, is this whole, you know, hybrid, flexible work from home, you know, 
uh, workplaces for many, not for all, let's be clear, many during the pandemic didn't have the privilege of being able to work from home. But in those instances, you know, structures like that would, would benefit those who you know, don't want to retire right away, want to work part time, want to work home, you know, want to, you know, think of, of, of those who, you know, I think of um, nurses or construction workers who have, you know, been frontline and, and hard all their lives. Look at opportunities where you can use those experiences and knowledges in, you know, they call it workplace accommodation, but, but in this pandemic period that, you know, that's, that's taught us that there, there are opportunities and there are ways to work forward on that to be sure. How can we use uh, tech as an ac- an asset rather for experienced workers in this scenario? Oh, absolutely. I mean, automation across the board is being discussed, right? You know, before before the pandemic, there was an infamous report that I think said in December 2020, you know, robots would have 60% of our jobs. And I remember going, you know, six months to go, where are all the robots, so on and so forth. And there's a real negative connotation to automation, but there's also a real positive piece as well, right? And, and for businesses right now, uh, you'll see a lot of reports and a lot of thoughts coming out now within this labor shortage, it really tips the balance, right? Where, where they might have thought earlier, maybe I could, maybe I couldn't afford, this really brings it to the forefront. And it can take away, you know, all of that more, you know, meaning, meaningful work, you know, we still need thought processes and, and the likes. Humans are never going to go away in the, the workforce. And the infamous example is bank tellers, right? When the ATMs came along, bank tellers didn't disappear. They're still there. They're just doing different and, and arguably more interesting and important um, work. So, so there's lots of possibilities within that, that automation framework. But what that also brings forward is, you know, a, a culture and a need uh, throughout our lives for lifelong learning right you know the whole technology piece and 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 i don't want to draw too many stereotypes but that's where the younger generations can help older generations as well with the the tech and the ai and 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 not only the technical stuff but just being more comfortable and familiar with it as well so it's it's a lot of win-win all the way around well it's interesting because as you were speaking i was thinking about how there has been a negative connotation about tech um and ageism in the workforce and then of course older workers and tech you know, and, and I think some of those preconceived notions are a little outdated now. Yes, definitely. I would say preconceived notions, but I think we're also naive if we don't think there's a culture of ageism uh, in this country. And even we're not alone globally, right? So it is, you know, it's not going to happen overnight, but, but it is, you know, a reality that, you know, uh, we are living longer, we are living healthier, and, and, and what we can all do to benefit from that, to be sure. Well, Canada's had a reputation for low investment per worker. Um, despite it being a deficit, it's still lagging. Yeah, and, and, you know, some of us take issues with some of those reports and how training and, and the like is, is counted, that's uh, to be sure. Um, but that's, you know, one of the things both business and government can do is business, uh, investment both in, in innovation, um, but also in training and, and employees as well, right, to... to take a look at, at, you know, even the example you gave in, uh, in the first example, right? You, you've had a career at G- GM. That's great. What else do you want to do, right? How can you leverage what you have to do something else or something similar, something else, uh, contribute, you know, back to the, the economy, and, but also be interested as well, right? You know, a lot of in- entrepreneurship has come out of the, um, the, the pandemic and all, you know, not 
not only for older persons, but across the board. But we've also said, you know, another concrete example is if you take a look at federal government funding, you know, they have the Women's Entrepreneurship Fund, you've got the Black Entrepreneurship Fund, you've got different pockets of, of, of entrepreneurship funding. Well, we did at the Canadian Chamber some work with some female entrepreneurships, female entrepreneurs, and they were telling us after 40, they feel invisible. 40 was the number they gave us, right? So if you can start looking at and, and targeting funding towards, um, you know, all entrepreneurs with a focus on on, on age as as as, as well as all of those other diversity uh, equity and inclusion lenses i think that would go a long way to help us as well we're in conversation with Leah Nord, who is Senior Director of Workforce Strategies and Inclusive Growth for the Canadian Chamber of Commerce. You were touching on some of the government policies and programs uh, that have been designed for women and uh, racialized workers. Um, but a lot of women and racialized workers who are in the 55 to 64 demographic may not be thinking about retiring at this point because on average, they make less than men. And so they need the money. They can't afford to retire yet. Absolutely. And, and you know, we I'll be honest, we don't have hard data about this, but we've known throughout, you know, if you look at what's happened in the U.S. compared to what's happened in Canada, that, that through the pandemic, they said a lot of people weren't retiring because it was the pandemic, right? They decided to, we weren't sure what was going on. It was safer to stay. What else were you going to do if you retired? And now, uh, you know, taking a look at the cost of living and inflationary, a lot of people are nervous, um, to retire. So there is absolutely a, a, an element of that as well. And, and, you know, there's a whole bunch of things that would support that. But it does include, you know, learning over time, supporting, you know, those in their, their, their you know, I, I don't know where to put the number. I mean, I guess technically it's, it's 65. But even if you look at, you know, you could be 65 and working until you're 100. You're living till you're 100, right? We kind of say over 65, and that's like a bucket. Right. So what does it mean to be in your 60s, in your 70s, in your 80s? I think we're going to have to like that's another recommendation we have is disaggregating the data and taking a look, you know, taking deeper dives into that rather than at 65. This is your retirement and, and that's it. Right. You're all together. It's all over. There you go. <laughs> it's all over. Don't say that. <laughs> no, no. But you know what I mean? Oh, yeah. I meant because it's <laughs> over the retirement age. Yes. Let me clarify that for sure. But do you know what? I, but to put, you know, four, four decades of, of Canadians into one group, I think we're, we're going to have to start delineating that a little bit better as well. Yeah, I know. If I see one more commercial with an older couple walking hand in hand down a sidewalk into a sunset. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but you, you did touch on uh, government policy. And it, we heard earlier uh, from the federal government about reducing the eligibility for old age security and guaranteed income supplements, uh, taking that back to 65. That's going to have an impact on this as well. Yeah. And, and we'll see how that goes. There's lots of questions within there. And the government has done, you know, we talk about increasing incentives, which is one way. And the budget did um, make reference to a career, an older career, I forget how they called it, something about an older uh, career tax um, credit, a career incentive tax credit, uh, you know, but also reducing uh, disincentives. And they've done that a little bit as well, because the way that that pensions are structured, right, it's to your benefit to work. You know, if you paid into a system, you want to start collecting at 65. But if you delay that, uh, and then get higher earnings, you know, down the road. That's one way. And and I do know that it's it's back on the table. I mean, 
in some careers it's a matter of safety but i don't think it's a matter of age anymore it's a matter of ability as well right so i think i think we're really through this i i'm all about opportunity in the post-pandemic period and i think i think we'll see some movement on that as well yeah, but if you are going to be delaying that access to that money a little bit later on, you've got to consider the tax implications there. And that's exactly where, where what we're saying as well is, you know, in creating incentives, maybe both for businesses and individuals to stay in the workforces longer, but also making sure that there isn't disincentive. Uh, those actually, you know, are often more powerful uh, than the incentives themselves. Um, one of the factors I think that it might help extend the work life of those who are 65 plus, if you like what you do. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you know what? It's a, it is pretty simple as that, right? Or, or as you, you know, progress through your career. Again, I had the benefit for a number of years of working in Ontario in health human resources, and they had a really innovative plan that's or program that's been taken up. And again, I, I might have referenced it late career nurses, right? So, so having those nurses who love their job and being able to impart what they know going forward, right? But even to be working in hospitals and learning about the two, new technology and having that benefit of that lifelong learning uh, would be be great as well, right? And 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 that's you know I, I love your point as well because it speaks to a you know a workplace culture and and very much you know intergenerational workplace culture and and, and how to make that work going forward as well. Yeah, I just, I, I'm one of those people who just doesn't see themselves retiring, at least not anytime soon. I like what I do. I like the people I work with and I learn new things every day. What can be better yeah. than that? And there's also the opportunity to do something different and fun as well, right? You know, this, uh, you know, lots of, lots of examples of, of that as well, right? And, and, you know, exploring what's out there and, and, you know, a lot, a lot of people go into retirement easily. A lot of people, you know, so much of us put, you know, our lives into work. It's, it's a hard thing. So if you can work part time, find something different and exciting, get back to your community in all sorts of ways, why not, right? Exactly. So Leah, if there is a need from uh, the business sector and, and employers, because there's a, a workforce deficit in terms of being able to have enough people to fill the jobs, and uh, there is uh, a less of a push on if you're 65 to get you out the door, uh, how can people in the 55 to 64 demographic make this work for themselves a little bit better? Yeah, this will be. This is the time to do it. Absolutely right. I mean, let's. Who's kidding? Who? We've got you know late, unprecedented labor shortages here. So you have have you know more leverage, I think, than than you've ever had in in, in your life. Well, maybe not in your lifetime, but but in a long time anyway. So you know, I, I find you know people being open, being creative, you know, approaching your employers to see you know, if a part-time flex arrangement would work, seeing what else is out there, what's of interest to you, what you could do, you know, quote unquote, when you, you know, we used to say, what do you want to be when you grow up? What do you want to be when you retire, right? So uh, lots of opportunity and, and, and again, and, and needed, needed to be sure. So uh, I think business and, and governments have a, a, a definitely a role to play in this. Let's, let's see what happens going forward, but individuals as well. There's, there's nothing wrong with asking, right? See what happens. Well, you have some HR background. I'm just wondering what companies are doing to prepare for this. Yeah, and a little bit of everything. And and it's sort of what I had said before, you know, even with automation or even, you know, this whole diversity and inclusion world as well. I would argue, you know, many of our members, most of our members have been interested in this. But you can imagine, you know, 
And I know it's, you know, the, the, the small business has a lot of pressures and a lot of priorities and a lot of, you know, we can't minimize in this post-pandemic period. They're still trying to get back on their feet. They've got, you know, deferred debt. They've got, you know, a lot going on. But because of this labor shortage, just brings it to the forefront. So not only are they talking about it, they're really interested in doing you know, changing hiring practices, intergenerational training, lifelong learning training, you know, the infamous wage conversation as well. This is this is all on the table in a way that I've actually never seen before. It's quite exciting. It will be interesting to see the way that this plays out. It's kind of nice for people who are 55 to 64 to finally be the bell of the working ball. Uh-huh. <laughs> Leah, thank I you. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> Leah, thank you for your time. Great. Have a wonderful day. You too. Leah Nord is Senior Director for Workforce Strategies and Inclusive Growth for the Canadian Chamber of Commerce. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.